Jojo Lopar, and welcome to Delving into Asian Psyches, the podcast in which we investigate the pasts, presents, and futures of psychology in the Indo-Pacific. My name is Robin Weber, and today I'm joined by Nisha Shrishta from Nepal. So today I'm talking with Nishta. She is an early career researcher with interests in child and adolescent mental health, trauma, art-based therapy, and global health. Currently, she's working with Save the Children as a research and evaluation officer on educational and humanitarian projects, but she is also active as a writer for The Rising Nepal, in which she highlights mental health issues. Recently, she graduated from Christ University in Bangalore, dedicating her PhD thesis to art-based interventions to treat emotional and behavioral problems among children affected by the 2015 earthquake in Nepal. Talking of this incident, I would like to give you some background information. Nepal is among the most vulnerable countries to natural disasters and earthquakes in particular. It faces such casualties every year, but 2015 was especially grave when a 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit the country, affecting up to 8 million people. Also known as the Gorkha earthquake, it killed close to 9,000 people and injured 22,000, displacing millions in the process. A considerate amount of victims were also children, and it is the worst disaster the country faced since 1934. Besides physical trauma, it has also caused many lasting mental health impacts, which we are going to focus more deeply on in this episode. And for that, I have my guest here, Nishta. Thank you for being here and joining my podcast. Hi, Robin. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. And it's a pleasure to talk about the psychology of Nepal today. Same here. It's great that we have this opportunity. Now, Nepal is also located in South Asia, as we have covered a few episodes before on. And I'm wondering how has psychology been studied in your area, in your place? And what have you found out about it? Okay, before I begin, I'd just like to point out one uh, important aspect of Nepal. That is that uh, Nepal is very diverse, diverse in terms of geography, because we have three different regions, that is the mountain, hilly and tarai. Uh, we have 126 ethnicities and 120 languages. So this diversity needs to be kept in mind when we talk about mental health in Nepal. So if we go into the history of psychology in Nepal, just to make it easier for our listeners to understand, I'd like to uh, divide the history into different decades, uh, starting from 1950s, because this is the time when psychology had entered Nepal. The first uh, psychology course was introduced at Trichanda Multiple Campus, and this course was initiated under Patna University, India. So we can see that the influence of foreign scholars is already present from this decade itself. And uh, we should also remember that during this time, Nepal had just uh, gained independence from Rana regime. So Rana regime was an autocratic regime during which people did not have any voices. So it lasted for more than a century. So at this time, since people did not have basic rights, so you cannot expect that psychology would progress at this time under such circumstances. Right? So people are just, the democracy had just started in this decade. So people were just getting used to the newfound freedom. So psychology 
was just in this very infant state, I would say, at this in this decade. Going to the 1960s, the first psychiatric service was introduced at Beer Hospital in Kathmandu. And uh, psychology courses also started getting introduced at the intermediate and bachelor level in this particular decade. In the next decade, that is the 1970s, foreign scholars started focusing on topics like cognition, perception, and sexism. And their studies found out that the children in this decade were found to be slow learners. And it is possible that they found out that the children are slow learners at this point because they were not much exposed to the world as they are right now. So it's possible that their learning was poor as compared to the Western society. And in terms of sexism, uh, they found out that the hierarchies that existed at that time in that society was necessary to maintain the social order. So so we have a caste system at that time. So the certain caste would do the religious work, certain caste would be focused on business, certain caste would be focused on the lower level jobs, the so-called lower level jobs, such as taking care of the trash, the sewage work. So all these hierarchy was important at that time to maintain the social order of the society. Coming to the 1980s, uh, this was the time when master's level course was introduced at Tribhuvan University. And it was also an important decade because this was the time when the first mental hospital was introduced in 1984. And till date, it is the only mental hospital in Nepal and it has a capacity of 50 beds. So you can already see how uh, weak the mental health sector of Nepal is. The researchers in this decade uh, focused on minority groups they had also interest in concepts like faith healing and witch doctors and there was also a growing awareness among the westerners that the way nepalese look at society is different than how they approach the society and the westerners think that um, it's a very individualized approach but in the case of nepal their identity is related with the community so this awareness started developing among the foreign scholars to see that there is a difference in how the westerners look at uh, the world and how nepalese look at the world Coming to the 1990s, this was the time when MPhil in clinical psychology was introduced in 1998. This decade was also important because a national mental health policy was introduced and this policy aimed to provide mental health care to everyone, but it was not implemented by the government. At the end of this decade, Nepal faced a civil war and this civil war lasted for about 10 years. So this civil war caused a lot of displacements, it led to the loss of lives, People were left homeless, children lost their parents. So it was the first event in the history of Nepal that showed how weak the mental health sector in Nepal was. So this was the first event, this um, civil war that Nepal faced. So it's natural that the next decade, that was 2000, was focused mostly on seeing the impact of the conflict on people. So there were efforts made to study the impact of the conflict on people, to see their mindset. The counselling services were offered to help these victims. Uh, studies were done on child shoulders because a lot of kids were also recruited to fight the war. I would like to just talk about an interesting study that was introduced in the decade. Uh, this study was done by Gordon Harper. Uh, this study outlined that there were five aspects of self in Nepalese society. And these five aspects were, first one is the man, which is the heart-mind. Uh, second was dimag, which was the brain. Third is the Jew, which is the physical body. Fourth is the Sato, which is the spirit. And fifth one is the Ijat, which is the honor of social status. So this study found out that in Nepal, people would not stigmatize if you had heart-mind problems. 
but they would be stigmatized if they had problems related to the brain because they consider that it was incurable. So a lot of stigma would be experienced by people if they had brain problems. In 2006, a mental health legislation was also introduced uh, in order to safeguard the rights of those with mental illness. But again, uh, this was also not implemented by the government. In the next decade, that was the 2010s, a lot of changes uh, happened and Nepal experienced changes in terms of the political scenario. And as you mentioned earlier, that we also experienced major earthquakes during this decade. In terms of the political scenario, it's important because this was the time when Nepal shifted from a multi-party system to a federal system of governance. So as you may be aware of that earlier Nepal was a was ruled by a monarchy system. Then we've shifted to a multi-party system and then now we have the federal system of governance. So this political instability has an impact on how people live and what they research and how the research culture itself develops. Because unless there is a proper environment, then research cannot prosper, right? So that was one that the new constitution was introduced. So people were getting used to the new system of governance. And then, of course, the earthquake. So as you mentioned earlier, there was a lot of death and destruction. And this earthquake also was the second event after the conflict to show that, you know, the mental health uh, in Nepal still needs a lot of work. And the research that was done during this decade was also focused on seeing the impact of the earthquake. So yeah, so this was, if I would say till the 2010s, these were the major uh, events uh, in Nepal. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have given such a great rundown of <laughs> the whole history already. Um, thank you so much for that. I guess I'm, <laughs> I can attach nothing to that, but as you have uh, touched on a little bit also that mentioning the, that the earthquake was quite impactful in the research as well. And as we've seen, it's um, natural disasters is something that happens frequently in Nepal. Has that also influenced psychological research before that? Or was that really such a turning point in recent years? Um, I think the earthquake brought uh, interest in seeing the impact of the disaster on mental health. Like it was known that uh, Nepal is a disaster-prone country because Nepal actually ranks 20th among the most disaster-prone countries. And in terms of the earthquake, it is ranked 11th um, in the list of most earthquake-prone countries. So the vulnerability was always there, but since it has not happened, people would not pay attention. So it's like the story of the wolf, like everybody's crying wolf, but nobody's paying attention. Once it actually comes, then they realize that, oh, they should have been prepared. So it's the same with earthquakes and the other natural disasters that we face every year, such as landslides and floods. So this is a yearly occurrence, but still we are not prepared for it. The earthquake brought about interest in the mental health aspect of the disaster because there were a lot of people that were experiencing these impacts. They themselves experienced it. It was not an isolated event, and it was not something that was happening in rural areas that people would not pay attention to. It was something that was happening in the city areas as well. So that, uh, I believe, brought a lot of attention to the event, and people got interested in seeing what was the impact of the earthquake on people. Right, right. Thanks for sharing that. And so since we already have you here, who is one of those people who were sparked by this interest about the consequences of this disaster, why not also delve into a little deeper in what you have done? So maybe to start off with, 
um, you could expand a bit on what you have explicitly researched in your PhD, what also has motivated you to do so, and what you found? Um, so it has been my experience uh, being in Nepal and seeing the mental health scenario is that people pay attention only for a short while. Like once the event is happening, then there is a lot of focus given, everybody's talking about it. But as the time passes, people forget about it and they don't even wonder whether anything has happened. It's only, it, it just acts as a reminder when the event date happens. Like for in the case of earthquake, every April 25th, people will talk about, yeah, the earthquake had happened and we need more measures. We need people to research about it. But then once the date passes, then again, it just dies down. So that kind of like got me interested to study about the long-term impact of the earthquake on children in Nepal. Children in particular, because uh, as I mentioned earlier in the history, that the focus on children is very less. If you had noticed as well, uh, in Nepal, if I can point out that we have only one hospital that caters to the psychiatric services for children. In 2020 alone, there were over 9,000 cases of child mental health issues. So when a single hospital, which has probably a staff of like five to six people catering to that many cases, the supply and the demand, there's a lot of mismatch in this scenario, right? So the focus on child mental health is very less. So that was another reason why I wanted to focus specifically on children to see what was the impact of the earthquake on children. And a study was also done a year after the earthquake to see uh, whether uh, the impact of the earthquake still exists in the children. And they found out that the, ch the children were still uh, experiencing reactions. They still had fear of loud noises and they had trouble sleeping as well, even after a year of the earthquake. So that itself shows the fact that long-term effect of the earthquake is there. The children are experiencing them, but nobody is really paying attention to them. They are paying attention, but it's not give, been given much focus. So that's the reason why I wanted to focus on children and specifically on emotional and behavioral problems, because usually it is PTSD that is given more attention after a disaster, right? People focus on PTSD, people focus on depression or anxiety, but the emotional dysregulation part is forgotten by the research community. It's not so. And in Nepal, the studies show that there is a prevalence of emotional and behavioral problems, but the studies are very less. So all these factors motivated me to take up this research. If I go into my research, so my research was focused on identifying the efficacy of art-based interventions for emotional problems among children affected by the earthquake in Nepal. And it was focused on children who were studying in grade one and two when the earthquake had happened. So at the time of the study, that was after three years, these kids were around eight to 14 years old. And one of the criteria of my study was that uh, these children had to be present in Kathmandu during the time of the earthquake because the earthquake had impacted different districts differently. So the exposure level would be different. So I wanted to keep that uh, aspect constant. So I made sure that children who, are, who were present in Kathmandu only were a part of my study. So in the first part of the study, I had conducted a survey in the area that I was going to do the study. And I came across two groups of people. Uh, one group of people who believe that it was not necessary to talk about the earthquake with the children because they've already forgotten about it. Why are you talking about it again to uh, remind them of the earthquake? Because it's believed that once you forget, then you are healed. That's the understanding. 
And the second group had seen the impact of the earthquake on children. So they were like, yes, we need such studies so that you know, people are aware of, of the fact that you know, we need to focus on children. Right? And it was also, it's worth mentioning that uh, the government had also offered counseling services um, in certain uh, community schools so as to help the kids who were really affected by the earthquake. And the schools had also stepped up during this time to conduct entertainment classes for these children because even though the earthquake was just a one-time event, the major earthquake would happened in May as well as in April, right? So April was one earthquake, a major one, and the second one was in May. So in between the time also, there was a lot of aftershocks that was going on. So these aftershocks also created fear in the people that, you know, we never know, it might just be another major earthquake. So because of this fear, the parents were not willing to send their children to school. But because these entertainment classes were being conducted by the school, the children were encouraged to come to school. And this kind of helped to establish the normal routine, which is very important after a trauma, that we need to establish normalcy so as to help them get back to their normal lives. Right. So this initial survey gave me the motivation that, you know, we I need to do this uh, research and going to my research in the first part of my research, I administered the uh, emotional behavioral tool as well as the level of exposure scale to know the state of emotional problems among the children. And I found out that the children were experiencing emotional problems in terms of conduct problems, uh, hyperactivity, inattention and peer problems. So these problems were present even after three years of the earthquake. And like other studies that have been done on emotional and behavioral problems, boys were found to have more externalizing problems as compared to the girls. And one of the possibility of this is because it is the parents who complete these kind of tools. And it's much more easier for the parents to see the external behaviors rather than the internal behaviors. And, and from a cultural point of view, it's much more acceptable for boys to be aggressive. It's much more acceptable for boys to them for them to be restless, whereas girls are expected to be calm and uh, follow the uh, rules of the society or follow the rules of the school. So they're not considered to be deviant as compared to boys. So this could be the reason, possible reason why there is a gender difference. I also asked the parents if they had found any change in their children after the earthquake, and they reported issues of seeing a decline in their studies, with their children being afraid to stay alone. Um, they found out that the children were easily startled. They tended to space out. So these behaviors were not present in their children before the earthquake. So this also shows the fact that, you know, uh, the children were experiencing problems, but no one was paying attention to those. And coming to the second part of my research, I implemented an art-based intervention. And this art-based intervention was focused on helping the children develop a narrative from what uh, experiences they had, how their present, how their life is at present, and what they look forward to in the future. These art-based intervention was done uh, in their schools in Nepal. Working with mental health is a bit of a challenge because people feel that if the moment you say that you are introducing a mental health program, they get start getting worried because they feel that then they'll be stigmatized. And with children also. When you, you yourself are selecting few children and you're leaving out the rest, they already feel, their parents tend to worry that what is wrong with my child. So this problem of stigma needs to be eradicated, but right now it is present. So this is something that I faced in my study as well to convince the parents to let the children be a part of my intervention. 
So without going into the result aspect, I would just like to in, like share some stories that the children had shared in the intervention. I think that would be much more interesting. So some of the stories that uh, the children had shared during the inter- art-based intervention through their drawings, uh, they drew their trauma out. So the children talked about how they were afraid to stay inside their homes because they felt that if, if they stay inside, then they, they feel that if a tremor comes, then the building will collapse on them. So they, this fear was depicted through the drawings. Um, some children drew about how um, difficult it was to live after the earthquake because uh, during that time when the earthquake had happened, it was raining very heavily. So the children remembered how it was difficult to stay without the tents because people were not prepared for the earthquake. So they had to stay, they got wet and there was no availability of toilets. So that was also another problem. And everybody was, they were living in crowded spaces. So these difficulties that they faced immediately after the earthquake were also shared by the children. And for some children who had lost their parents, they got exposed to the death rituals that happen in our society. One of the children talked about how because she had lost her dad, she was not able to celebrate one of the major festivals. So when everybody else is celebrating and you alone are being forced to not celebrate, that feeling of being left out was shared by the children through the drawings. For some, the issues was in terms of studies where they felt that they had this constant fear in their mind that the school will collapse. So they are present in the classroom. The teacher is teaching, but the back of the mind, they are looking in the surrounding to be sure that there is a place to run so that if there is an aftershock or any tremor, they can just run out. So those kind of fears were also shared in the drawings. What stood out for me during this intervention was that these children are very resilient. Like they have experienced so much, but still they found a way to cope with it. Some coping strategies were taught to them by their parents. Like an interesting one that I'd like to share is, so as I mentioned earlier, that we always have aftershocks after the earthquake. Until date, we have some aftershocks. So one of the kids talked about how every time there is an aftershock, he remembers the god Hanuman. So Hanuman is the god who gives courage. So since he had to go to the toilet alone, and he was always afraid that, you know, even what if an earthquake comes during that time? So he used to chant the name of Hanuman and go to the toilet so that he could deal with the fear. So uh, those cultural coping mechanisms were also shared by the children during this intervention period. Coming to the next part of the study, which was uh, semi-structured interviews were conducted with these children who had been a part of the art-based intervention. And during these interviews, the children shared that their experience of being a part of the intervention not only helped them to deal with their fears of the earthquake, but they also noticed that they were experiencing a change in their studies because they, they found out that they, they were much more motivated to study now. They were fighting less with their friends, so their relationships with their friends had also improved. At home, their sibling relationships had improved. So I feel that these all changes uh, that the aid-based intervention brought about, not only in terms of helping them deal with the trauma memories, but also brought in holistic improvement in their life was because the children understood what was going on within them. Like till now, nobody had sat down with them and talked to them about how earthquake occurs. So this was one interesting aspect because some kids shared that when they asked their parents about how earthquake had happened, they were told that earthquake happens when the mother nature is angry. So in order to calm mother nature down, you have to press your thumbs to the ground. 
So if you press the thumb to the ground, then the, the shaking will stop. So this cultural meaning is important, but getting to know like why earthquake happens and understanding that it's a natural phenomena helped them to understand this unknown phenomena that they were exposed to, right? So as I mentioned that since the aftershocks were constantly happening, the skills that they learned in the art-based intervention were also applied. So when they realized that when the aftershock is happening and they were able to apply those skills, they realized that it works. So they felt that they were much more confident. If an earthquake will come in the future, they got that confidence that, you know, I can deal with it. So the art-based intervention, I believe, was practical. And I think it needs to be expanded to other places of Nepal as well, so as to be a part of the disaster prevention training, I believe. And I'm hoping that I can take this forward in that regard. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for sharing all that and giving us that insight. I think it's really valuable work that you have put into and from the volume that you have to share with us also really proves that you have put in that work. To connect to your last sentence, I mean, you really are putting this work forward as well with your continued engagement with development and working with children. On one hand, now with, with Save the Children uh, in your research area, but also in writing, where I have seen that many of your articles also cover the mental health of children. So if you want to talk about what is currently um, on your mind and where are you putting your energy into? Um, right now, I'm focused on bringing awareness among the people. So like after the pandemic that happened, a lot of people wanted to know about uh, mental health. But since being a psychologist, I was monitoring the, the random talks that was happening in the community, in the online, because everybody was at home. So there were a lot of online talks that was happening in Nepal. So I used to be a part of those online talks. And I used to see that people were curious when they were scared. They started experiencing emotions that they never experienced before. So these emotions were created by the pandemic, but there was not, I would say, proper authority to help them understand those emotions. And terms like depression, anxiety was being used very easily. So even if you're trying to say that I'm sad, people are just saying I'm depressed, but that's not the way to use the term, right? So I, I'm right now focused on bringing awareness about these issues, these basic concepts, so that people know uh, we already have a limited people help those who are suffering from mental health issues because data shows that there are only 40 clinical psychologists in Nepal. So the number is very less for the entire population. So we need more educational institutions that can teach psychology graduates so that we can cater to the mental health needs. Because as I mentioned, there are already three major events that have happened in Nepal, the conflict, the earthquake, and the pandemic. So I'm pretty sure if you look at it, there would be an impact of all of these three events. And I'm hoping that the researchers in the coming days would try to see the impact of all these three events and see whether uh, you know, people who have undergone all these three events, what are the impact? What What is their mental health state now? So, yeah, so that's, awareness is one aspect that I'm focused on. And the second thing is I'm also focused on trying to find low-cost interventions because in, right now the mental health services is offered mostly by the private sector. So the cost of therapy is very high. So finding low-cost intervention would make it easier to implement in the rural areas as well as in the city areas as well because people want help but they don't have the financial resources to access those mental health services. So I think, yes, these two are the areas that I'm focused on right now.
Mm -hmm. That sounds very promising and again, really shows your engagement with it that I really admire. So maybe to come to a closing area in when we look into the future, as you've mentioned, psychology is really also a developing project in Nepal that has a lot of room to grow. And if you imagine what would be most prominent and useful for the field to change in the next coming years? Um, I think since the time I started uh, my journey in this field until now, it's been more than 10 years, but the problems seem to be the same. And these problems would be the fact that one, we do not have a licensing body. So any person can just do a diploma and offer their counseling services, which is not good. Um, the second thing is that we, you know, we don't have enough educational institutions to teach psychology and the educational systems that do exist right now, the curriculum is outdated. So they're not much more exposed to the different specializations of psychology that exist. Right now, they're just focused on clinical psychology, counseling psychology and organization psychology, but there are different branches as well. So that exposure hasn't happened yet in the field. And with regard to the research, we still need more fundings so that people would be encouraged to take up research. Foreign scholars have helped establish the psychology in Nepal. Like the field has uh, progressed a lot because of their contribution as well. But it would be nice if there are more local funds available for uh, research so that the Nepali scholars would be encouraged to take up research. Because if everything is dependent on the foreign donors, then the research topics that they take up would not be suitable for the Nepali society. That may not be what Nepal as a um, field would want. So I feel that imbalance can be resolved if more funding is available for research locally. So I think if these Cut. challenges are taken into account and these are resolved, then I think more and more people, more young people would be encouraged to join mental health and they would be able to help those people who are suffering. So to come to the closing remarks, I think we are well on time and you have already sh shared so many valuable things. I'm very grateful that you have found the time to be on here and tell us about that. Nepal, it's often like that country between India and China. And I'm very glad that we could give it a special look at also in this series. Now, if people liked what they heard from you and they would uh, like to learn more about Nepal and the mental health areas in it, how can they best find you? Um, so I'm available on Linktree. So I think Robin would share that link with everyone. So you can reach out to me in that way. And I'd just like to end with one thing that I would like to say that uh, Nepal has a lot of potential. Uh, we may be a small country, but there's a lot of scope for research. And I hope the scholars both in Nepal as well as foreign uh, would be interested to explore more about the mental health in Nepal. That's a very good uh, point to end our conversation here. Thank you so much, Nishta, for being on. Um, thank you, Robin, for inviting. Hmm. And thanks everybody else for listening and tuning in. Uh, this has been the Nepal episode in a fortnight. I will continue the series where I'll talk with a researcher from Singapore and we will talk about the links between psychology and religion. Until then, I wish you have a really good time and don't forget about us. Uh, see you then. Bye bye.